stand in the presence of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as the enemies of the cross of Christ. I've often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, their glory is their shame, their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we're expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of His glory, by the power that also enables Him to make all things subject to Himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. German scholars encourage us to seek the Sitzenleben of any passage of Scripture that is its setting in life. We need to know a little bit more about Philippi if we are to understand what Paul is trying to say to the small group of Christians who live there. Philippi was founded in the year 356 before the Common Era by a fellow named Philip II of Macedonia. Philip II lived in this northernmost part of Greece and had distinguished himself to the point that he had lots of money and lots of influence. He also had a son whom he loved better than life. He wanted this son, Alexander, to have the very best of teachers, and he procured one Aristotle to come and teach him. Alexander would be known in history as Alexander the Great. Philippi was founded by Philip II, named for himself because gold and silver were discovered in the hills nearby. All of that gold and silver had been mined out 200 years later. The city was just a shell of its former self. There was a terrible battle fought on the plains just outside Philippi in the year 42 before the Common Era. You'll remember the setting for that battle. Shakespeare set it up for us well in his play about Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was assassinated in Rome in that famous line, Et tu Brute, you tu Brutus, yes, Brutus and Cassius. Mark Anthony and Octavian set out in hot pursuit of Brutus and Cassius. They caught them and their armies on the plains just outside Philippi. There was a terrible battle that year of 42 and Mark Antony and Octavian were victorious. Brutus would commit suicide. Cassius would try to flee rather than being captured and killed. Octavian would become the next Caesar, and he was such a powerful man, he became known in history as the Caesar Augustus. Ninety-two years after Augustus became Caesar, he sent, uh, having sent in retired legionnaires, uh, to bolster this little city of Philippi, Paul walked in. Paul said that a voice and a vision had said to him, come over from Asia to Europe, and the first place he visited was Philippi. Eventually the Romans would build a magnificent highway all the way from Rome to ancient Byzantium, modern-day Istanbul, and hundreds of years later a railroad track would be laid along that Roman road and would carry a train known as the Orient Express, linking west and east. Paul preached to the people in Philippi. He disrupted the community, telling them there was only one true God, that this God had made himself known more clearly than ever before in Jesus of Nazareth. They threw him into jail, do you remember? 
he was released from jail in the middle of the night with an earthquake-like activity of some sort. The doors of the prison were shattered. He and those with him got to escape. They went on down the Via Ignatia to Thessalonica, eventually to Berea, then south to Athens. He had very little success there, moved to the western side of Greece to Corinth and had greater success. The church at Corinth was a constant headache and problem, always a word coming to him from Corinth about their squabblings with each other. Not so the Philippians. They seem to have gotten along very well. We have only this one letter of Paul to the church at Philippi, and scholars believe he didn't write it for four years from the time he first established the church. So if Paul were in fact there in early 50, we believe this letter was written back to that church in the year 54. Four things I've underlined as being very important here. Paul first says to these people whom he loves, there are people who are trying to lead you astray. They are enemies of the cross, and by that he meant the cross of Christ, he felt, was a representative of Jesus' willingness to go as far as was required to show the love of God, to go as far as was required to do the will of God, which was to show that divine love, and that we too should put that cross at the center of our lives, Instead, he said, these people who would lead you astray are enemies of the cross. Their destruction is sure. Their God is their belly, he said. They are focused on things of the earth. One of my professors, in talking about Genesis chapter 2, said that God went out onto the plain when the dew had settled in the early morning dust scooped up from that Adama, a little bit of that moistened earth, put it on a potter's wheel, began to treadle. The little wheel went round and round. God molded and fashioned it till he had it just the way he wanted it, took a big, deep ruach and breathed into this little man his own spirit, and humans became living beings. The word in Hebrew is nephesh. He became a nephesh, and it's translated living beings for us. But Dr. Power said it literally means open mouth. And this little Adama became an open mouth, a bundle of appetites. Eugene Peterson picks up on this in his rendering of this verse. He says, their destruction is sure. Their God is their appetites. The appetites are God-given. Genesis says God created a good thing. It's good to be able to taste lots of different wonderful things. It's good to see lots of beautiful things. It's wonderful to hear handbells ring, people sing, an organ play. It's wonderful to be able to smell really wonderful good things. We have all kinds of bodily sensations, sexuality being one of those gifts, and all of these good, if not the center of one's life. If kept into proper check and balance, if always weighed of responsibility as well as opportunity, when the focus is on the appetites rather than on the one who created us, a bundle of appetites. Dr. Peter Singer is a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He had an article in this week's Newsweek magazine. Excerpts from it were picked up by the Wall Street Journal on Friday. 
Dr. Peter Singer is saying in this article that if any one of us should be on the way to work one morning and see a small child fall into a shallow pond, look as if he or she might drown, we would go charging into that water in a moment. Even if we were wearing new shoes, our most expensive dress or suit, that wouldn't even be a consideration. Rescue that child. Yet, he said, every day, an average of 27,000 children die on the planet Earth from things you and I know how to eradicate. 1985, I became president of the Downtown Rotary Club. I preached to you on the Sunday morning of the international conventions beginning that afternoon in Kansas City. Gail and I went straight to the airport, flew to Kansas City. We heard old Dr. Sabin speak to the Rotarians. There were more than 30,000 of them gathered in Kansas City from 154 countries in the world. He said, 40 years after we have a vaccine for polio, there's still a half million new cases every year. A half million new cases every year. 500,000 more children who have to be crippled are killed by this disease after you and I have known how to prevent it. We must do something, he said. If you two million Rotarians would commit yourselves and $125 million, we can drive this disease from the planet. He underestimated the cost a little. We've now spent half a billion. Two million Rotarians have spent half a billion dollars trying to eradicate polio from the planet. Last year there were fewer than 50 cases, not 500,000, fewer than 50. We're still trying to find those last few pockets, mostly in Africa and India. Now we've been told it may take 200 million more dollars. And Bill Gates stepped up and said, well, if you Rotarians will raise 100 million more, I'll give the other 100 million. Let's get rid of this disease. You know what's killing the rest of the children? The biggest cause of death among children in the world today is malaria. When we know what to do about malaria, it's killing more children than anything else. Unsafe water that they drink, in which they bathe or wash themselves or have food cooked in. Bad water. Dr. Singer said, if it were one child, we would rush in to save that child. But because there are 27,000 of them every new day, we don't know where to begin. But he said, this much I can tell you. If we focus on saving one and then another and another and another, we will discover that the wisest men and women of all history this is not a seminary professor. This is a professor of Princeton University saying, those who learn to focus on the other will be happier than those who focus on the self. Number two, we are citizens of heaven, Paul says. Paul understands the people he's addressing. He was born in a Roman colony called Tarsus. And by virtue of the fact that he was born in a Roman colony called Tarsus, he was immediately a Roman citizen. 
at this point. He had never been to Rome. But he was a citizen of Rome, which meant that he had both privilege and duty of being a Roman. These people to whom he wrote in Philippi, they were also Romans. The Caesar Augustus had seen to that. This was a Roman colony. They had all the privileges and responsibilities of being a Roman, even though they lived hundreds of miles from Rome. In our country, we love to talk about our privileges, that we are supposed to have access to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We also have responsibilities, like registering to vote, informing ourselves, and showing up every time the polls open. Every time the polls open. We're supposed to pay taxes to our schools so that every child in America can go to a good school. To our cities, our towns, to our states, to our federal government. To see to the well-being of all of our citizens, he said. Paul says it's wonderful, isn't it? to be a citizen in a Roman colony, but I tell you there's something better, and that's being a citizen of heaven. I'm not kidding when I say I was writing sermon titles on an airplane as Gail and I flew to Fairbanks last July. It was stormy. The plane was pitching and bucking as we tried to get down into Fairbanks, and I'm reading my Bible trying to write sermon titles. And here was this one about we are citizens of heaven, citizens of heaven. And it reminded me of an old story that I told you years ago. A missionary couple who had spent more than 35 years of their lives in the jungles of Africa finally had come to retirement age. And the mission board said to them, we're sending you the money to come home. And they booked passage on a ship and came all the way from Africa to New York City. Now, this was in the day when traveling abroad was a really big deal and people lined up by the thousands to see a big shipload of people leave and came back to welcome them home. And that day there were lots of people greeting this ship. There was a couple of movie stars and they had big entourages meeting them with fresh flowers. A couple of sports heroes and they were being greeted with lots of fanfare. A couple of politicians and they also were being greeted royally. For some reason, nobody from the mission board showed up to welcome this couple home. And the man was grousing about it as they looked for a taxi. And his wife said, But you and I are not home yet. We're not home yet. When we get home, we will be greeted. We will be greeted. Number three. I underline these very important words I want you here to hear. It is from there, heaven, that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the trips that I wanted to help my mother and father make was a trip to see some of the places where my father's unit had been in World War II. He had never been back. Um, one day we were driving toward Bastogne. Um, my father was in General Patton's 3rd Army, 186 Black Hawk Infantry Division. Um, you may recall what was going on in Bastogne, a relatively small town in Belgium, just across the French border. 
um, the 101st Airborne of our country were pinned down by the Germans, surrounded by them. It was December 1944. General Patton and the Third Army had been told to go rescue MacAuliffe and the 101st Airborne. Uh, they were trying. It was snowing. They had had clouds and snow, clouds and snow for days and days. No way the Air Force could get through at that point because of the weather. Uh, they were frantically trying to get there. And on the 22nd of December, the commanding officer of the German forces sent two of his officers uh, to the Americans and said they had a message for their commanding officer. Uh, the message was taken to General McAuliffe and read to him and interpreted for him and he gave a response and they went back, handed it to the two German officers and they took it back to their commanding officer. What he had said to McAuliffe was, you have two hours. Two hours to surrender unconditionally and if you do not, uh, we will annihilate you. I have artillery on all the hills around Bastogne. We will rain down fire from hell on you if you do not surrender within two hours. And when they got back to their commanding officer, uh, did MacAuliffe see the note? He did. And what was his response? And these two looked at each other, and the officer said, What did he say? Ersacht Nusa, they said. Ersacht Nusa. He said, Nuts. Nuts. You do not know what I know. Patton and the Third Army are coming. They are coming. And my father and thousands of others were jogging through knee-deep snow to get to Bastogne to rescue MacAuliffe and the 101st. And when you go to Bastogne today, the center plaza there is called MacAuliffe Square. MacAuliffe Square. Paul is saying we are citizens of heaven. And there is nothing that can defeat us. Nothing. Because we are expecting a Savior from there, Jesus Christ our Lord. Number four, he will transform these bodies of humiliation, weak, prone to disease, certain to die. He will transform them, reshape them, now, this is the Jewish idea, you see. It's not the Greek idea that a little spirit is affixed to us when we're born and it flits away when we die. This is the Jewish idea. You really do die. If there's anything after this, after the Adama returns to the dust from which it was made, it will have to be a gift of God. But you can count on it. There will be a gift of God. He will give you a resurrection body. He will transform so that you may conform to his resurrection body, which is now a glorious one, he says. Three years after the great civil war in our country was over, a young pharmacist up in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, 1868, was filling prescriptions one morning when the door opened in his little apothecary and a friend walked in. This fellow's a musician, a violinist. It was hard to make a living as a professional musician in a little town like Elkhorn, Wisconsin, and this fellow was depressed at least half the time. So Sanford Bennett said to his friend Joseph, how are things going this morning? And he said, ah, so-so, okay, in the by and by. 
And Sanford said, why don't you warm yourself by the stove? I'll be right with you. But instead of finishing with that prescription he was working on, he took a pen and paper and began to write. There's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, we can see it afar. The Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful